Hello and welcome to Champagne and Murder, please. I am your host, Brittany. I hope all of you are doing well today. I hope you guys had a great week last week. Um, today we are drinking a Fit Vine Prosecco. It's low in sugar and it has fruity and tropical flowers and pear. It's vibrant, clean, and light. It actually tastes pretty good. You can get it at fitvinewine.com and it's only about 20 bucks, so you guys should try it out. Um, today's story is a bit long, so I kind of want to just jump into it for you. Um, not a lot of chit chat. Um, I apologize for my voice. I am a little bit sick, but we're going to get through it and it's going to be fine. So let's go. So for my story today, I have for you Irene Garza. Um, she was born in 1934 to parents Nicholas and Josefina Garza. They owned a family dry cleaning business in McAllen, Texas, in what is known as the Rio Grande Valley. By the time Irene was a teenager, her parents' business was flourishing and they and was very successful. So it was so successful, they were able to move to a more affluent neighborhood. Irene graduated from McAllen High School, where she had been the first Latina to perform as a twirler or head drum majorette. Irene was also crowned in the 1958 Miss All-South Texas Sweetheart, and she was the homecoming queen at Pan American College. Go Irene! To her friends and those who admired her, Irene was many things. A natural beauty, an accomplished teacher who worked with McGallan's most disadvantaged children, a devout Catholic who was active in the Legion of Mary. She was also the first person in her family to attend college and graduate school. Irene taught second grade and was elected PTA secretary. In April 1960, a letter to an old friend, she wrote, quote, It may not sound like much, but to me it means a great deal. It means I'm overcoming my terrible shyness and becoming surer of myself, end quote. Her job was a great source of pride in her life, stating that the children she was teaching were such a joy to her, but it was her faith that sustained her. She wrote, quote, remember the last time we talked, I told you I was afraid of death. Well, I think I'm cured. You see, I've been going to communion and mass daily, and you can't imagine the courage and faith and happiness it has given me, end quote. Saturday, April 16th, 1960, Irene told her parents she was going to Sacred Heart Church for confession. She borrowed the family car, promising her mother she wouldn't be long. She left her parents' house at about 6.30 in the evening and drove the 12 blocks to the church. Irene rarely went unnoticed. Some men even went to Mass just to admire her. And that night, as many waited in line for absolution, many people caught sight of her. One person noticed that Irene made the sign of the cross upon entering the sanctuary. Another parishioner said they saw Irene kneeling by herself in a pew in the fifth row. A third asked her if they could cut in front of her in the confession line since they were already running late. She, some recalled she had draped a white lace veil over her head, while others said she stepped out of the line as if she was going to leave. But all of those parishioners to witness Irene being at church, none of them or anyone else for that matter saw her leave the church that night. The next morning was Easter Sunday, and her car was still parked in the same spot as the night before, just down the street from the church and Irene had never come home. A single high-heeled shoe was found on the side of the road, which was the first clue that something bad had happened to Irene. A passerby named P.W. Miller was one of the first who found the shoe two days later. 
It was found on an empty stretch of McCall Road. It was about two inches away from the curb. The shoe was small, beige, and fiancé's brand, which fit a woman's left foot. It was slightly scuffed, and the heel tap was missing. Irene's family confirmed that she had worn that same shoe to confession Saturday night. The trail of evidence led investigators north, everything scattered along the roadside. 300 yards from the shoe, a fellow teacher named Alfredo Peewee Barrera found the following morning what appeared to be a black patent leather purse lying in the middle of a field. It looked like someone had flung the purse out the window of a car. Barrera was smart and picked the purse up with a stick so as not to contaminate it. Good job. And to see if police could dust it for fingerprints, but there were none on it. Inside was Irene's driver's license. And even further north, investigators found a piece of white lace crumpled up in a bush. Seventy members of the Hidalgo County Police Department, some even on horseback, fanned out through the orange groves and mesquite thickets east of McCall Road in the following days. They were all looking for Irene or more clues to where she could have gone. Detectives on foot combed through the brush and canvassed 30, the 32-square-block area that surrounded Sacred Heart Church. They even went house to house. Skin divers, see that came up again, dragged irrigation canals that fed off the Rio Grande, and two Border Patrol planes searched from overhead. Sixty-five National Guardsmen were called to assist with what had become, at the time, one of the most extensive investigations in Valley history. Detectives would follow up on hundreds of leads, including the boasts of a tourist at the Highway Grill in Edinburgh, who had told one of the waitresses that he had killed Irene warning her that she was next. Later, he admitted that when he was boasting, he had drunk a half bottle of tequila and was only joking, which is a stupid-ass joke, if you ask me. Then a call came in at Irene's parents' house. A woman identifying herself as Irene was pleading for help, claiming she had been kidnapped and was being held in a motel room in Hidalgo, which is the next town over. Dozens of police rushed to get to the hotel, only to find out it was all a hoax and a waste of time. The Thursday following Easter, the McAllen Police Department got a call at 7.40 in the morning. It was a report of a woman's body floating in the Second Street Canal across from the Sears. As a crowd gathered, police detectives and sheriff's deputies used a tarp to lift Irene's body from the water. She had been fully clothed except for her shoes and underwear, which were missing. She was wearing a lavender blouse that had been unbuttoned, and her petticoat had a had ballooned over her head. The right side of her face was badly bruised, and she had two black eyes. The autopsy would later state that she had been beaten with a hard object and that she had been suffocated. Her state of decomposition suggested that she had possibly been dead for slightly fewer than four days, which led investigators to theorize that Irene had been held captive for up to a day before she was killed. And it was also determined that she had been raped while unconscious. I don't know how... They come to that conclusion, but they did. Her brother-in-law, who was one the one to positively identify Irene at the morgue that morning, was so horrified at the sight of Irene that he ran from the room. The newspapers, which ran countless front-page articles about the murder of the, quote, dark-eyed former beauty queen, end quote, were rife with suspicion. The Valley Morning Star wrote a week after Irene's body was found, quote, The city has been in a state of near hysteria as rumors flew thick and fast, end quote. Rumors are about 
Rumors about the murderer's identity went beyond the ridiculous, and it appeared that everyone was prepared to believe just about anything they were told about the case. One rumor from a former news from a newspaper in Monterey, Mexico, said that the killer was Leo de Leon, a prominent McAllen resident who died of a heart attack just days after Irene went missing. That was quickly debunked by the police. Others thought that she had been killed by a transient or a frustrated suitor. But as for the quote-unquote wild rumors that had been making their way around the valley, the newspapers referred to them only ambiguously. But the one theory that kept all of McAllen whispering never appeared in print. People wondered about it privately, in hushed voices, after their children had gone to sleep. Some even made the sign of the cross to even entertain such an unholy thought, and they would ask God for forgiveness because, as the rumor had it, the murderer was a priest. Even a standard home burglary usually had more clues than McAllen's most sensational murder case did in its early days of the investigation. They had no eyewitnesses, no fingerprints, and no physical evidence that could tie anyone to the crime, like hair, blood, semen. It was all washed away in the canal. The 30 or so state and local lawmen working on the case had no lead suspects they could question or a crime scene they could investigate. They all had to go, all they had to go on was a muddy shoe print that a sheriff's deputy spotted on the banks of the Second Street Canal, about four blocks away from where Irene's body had surfaced. Inside the shoe print was a tangled strand of Irene's hair, which led investigators to theorize that this location was where the killer had unloaded Irene's body from the car and pitched her into the canal. There were some tire tracks and a faint imprint of her petticoat, but it had rained and the ground was so soaked they were unable to make out any details about the sole of the killer's shoe or its exact dimensions, but they surmised it could be a men's size 8 to 11. Despite having little to no evidence, Hidalgo County Sheriff E.E. E. Vickers vowed that his team of detectives would quote-unquote leave no stone unturned. Mayor Philip Boyai, or Boyai, not sure, announced that the McAllen City Commissioners gave the police department a blank check for the cost of a probe so detectives would have whatever money is necessary to help solve the crime. Local businesses, including the Benson Brothers, posted reward money totaling $10,000, which is about $103,725 today. Detectives questioned more than 500 people in the weeks after the murder, taking statements from Irene's friends, family, ex-boyfriends, co-workers, and anyone who might have seen her that night that she went missing. They interrogated sex offenders across the valley, as well as suspects from as far away as El Paso. They gave lie detector tests to 61 people, grilling any man who had the luck to have taken Irene out on a date. Texas Rangers conducted interviews of everyone who had been at Sacred Heart Church on the night before Easter, and they went so far as to reconstruct that evening's confession lines, mapping out who stood by whom. Some note that if Irene had been from Southtown, where most of McAllen's Hispanic population lived, the investigation into her murder wouldn't have been so extensive. McAllen was more tolerant than other towns around the valley, but it was still deeply divided. When Irene was a little girl, McAllen's one swimming pool had banned Hispanic people. Rude and they made do in the Texas heat by swimming in the town's irrigation canals. Irene had been often been the exception to the rule. At McAllen High School, where Anglos were the majority, Irene was the first Hispanic twirler and head drum majorette, 
When she was 15, her family's business was doing well enough that they were able to move north of the railroad tracks in a predominantly Anglo neighborhood. They settled in surround and were surrounded by Hispanic doctors, lawyers, and merchants, so Irene fit right in. She was fair-skinned and well-educated. She was always dressed nicely in pillbox hats and sweater sets with her worldly glamour, but she was still firmly rooted in her old neighborhood. She was a teacher at Thigpen Elementary, south of the tracks, where some of her students were so poor they came to school without shoes. And Irene, having the big heart that she did, spent her first paycheck on the kids, buying them shoes, clothes, and books. So this is how sweet Irene was. Irene's case, at least publicly, seemed to move forward with very little progress. On April 26th, the Valley Morning Star headline read, quote, police still sift for murder clue, end quote, and on May 1st, quote, police search for break in Garza murder case, end quote. But behind the scenes, the police were focusing on a 27-year-old priest named John Fight, who had just finished his seminary training in San Antonio. Police knew almost nothing about the young man with dark hair and some very distinctive horn-rimmed glasses, but his name kept coming up in their investigation. He had come to the valley for a year of pastoral training. He performed baptisms and offered communion with his order, the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate. He seemed bright and was well-mannered, and he was able to deliver his sermons in Spanish with ease. But parishioners felt he was aloof and a bit of a loner, unlike the good-natured Father Joseph O'Brien, who was the assistant pastor at Sacred Heart, and he enjoyed the demands of parish work. Fight seemed more ambivalent about his position. He was asked once why he had joined the priesthood, and Fight did not speak of his deep faith or a hearing a call to serve. Instead, he said, quote, I just wanted to give it a try, end quote. Normally, that's not what you hear pastors saying. They say that they were called or they felt moved, but no, John Fight was just bored, apparently. The night that Irene went missing, Fight was assisting the clergy at Sacred Heart. He was hearing confessions and taking part in the Midnight Mass. He had also met privately with Irene, which he admitted to his superiors. He had taken her to the church rectory. Father Fight's account of what took place the night Irene went missing shifted in the weeks after her body had been found. He initially claimed that Irene wanted to come to the rectory to discuss a, quote, question of conscience, end quote, with him, but exactly what she said he would not disclose, saying that after he sent her to the sanctuary to confess. But later in another retelling, Fight said that he had heard her confession in the rectory, which the other priests viewed as highly inappropriate after Irene had expressed a fear of being overheard. Some of the other details are that parishioners who had stood in his stalled confession line that night told detectives that Fight seemed to be absent from the sanctuary for long periods at a time. Father O'Brien stated that when he and the other priests were having coffee after midnight mass, he noticed that Fight had some conspicuous scratches all over his hands. Detectives started looking deeper into Fight when they learned of another attack that had happened at a nearby Catholic church. Three weeks before Irene was killed, March 23rd, a 20-year-old college student, Maria America Guerrera, had visited Sacred Heart Church in Edinburgh, about 12 miles from Sacred Heart in McAllen. In a later statement to police, Maria told them that she noticed a young man with dark hair and horn-rimmed glasses sitting all alone in one of the back pews. 
He resembled the stranger she had seen late that afternoon who had been watching her from a blue and white sedan, saying, quote, The thought that it was the same man that I saw earlier entered my mind, but being in the house of God, I dismissed any thoughts of fear or foul play. I went to the altar and knelt at the communion rail to pray my rosary, end quote. And no sooner had she begun, Guerrera said, than the man grabbed her from behind and tried to put a rag over her mouth. She was screaming and fell backwards to the floor where her attacker tried to cover her mouth with his hands. She bit down on his fingers until she drew blood. He threw her into a wall and she ran out a side door of the church, saying, quote, I was screaming and crying and yelling for help as I had fear for my life, end quote. Guerrera's encounter was already well known to the Catholics around McAllen since her story was told and retold quietly in the days following Irene's disappearance. Guerrera said in her sworn statement, quote, I thought the man who attacked me was a priest, end quote. Though she had no proof, she could only point to definitively that it was a clergyman. She just knew that he had been wearing black pants as the priests often did. Maria had felt ashamed for even voicing her suspicion, but she was just repeating her original impression of the man. Around McAllen, the theory that a priest was involved in both of the crimes was broached discreetly. Priests were viewed as literal men of God and absent of moral failings and not the subjects of criminal investigations. Quote, the feeling was that if you wanted to remain a Catholic, you'd better not discuss it, end quote remembered a friend of Irene's who asked to not be named for fear, she said half-jokingly, of excommunication. She recalled attending Sunday Mass after Irene's funeral, at which parishioners were warned not to bear false witness against any member of the clergy. Quote, the priest at Our Lady of Sorrows said he knew that rumors were going around about a priest being involved in Irene's murder, she said. He told us, it's impossible that a priest would commit a crime like this. Don't speak of it. Don't even let yourself think it. End quote. In April, investigators drained and dragged the Second Street Canal in the area that they had found the muddy shoe print. And lying on the bottom, a few feet from where investigators believed that Irene's body had been dumped, was a light green Eastman Coda slide viewer with a long black cord. Police appealed to the public for help finding its owner, and two days later, Father John Fite came forward and said that he had purchased the viewer the previous summer at the Port Isabel drugstore. Hmm. In May, when Fight sat down with detectives, he provided a meticulous accounting of his actions for Easter weekend. Saturday night, he confirmed he had counseled Irene in the rectory at Sacred Heart. He claimed he saw her last when they exited the rectory between 7.15 and 7.20 p.m. And afterward, he said he heard confessions for several hours in the sanctuary and had twice returned to the rectory to smoke cigarettes. He said that as he sat in the confessional that night, he had accidentally broken his glasses, saying he had a, quote, nervous habit of playing around, end quote, with them when he had to listen to the parishioners talk for an extended period of time. And at 10 o'clock, he drove home to the pastoral house of the Oblate Father five miles away in San Juan to get his other pair of glasses, of course. But when he got there, he realized the door was locked and he didn't have his keys, and he said, Quote, because of this, I had to make my entrance through the second floor balcony, propping up a wooden roadblock or barricade against the side of the house and climbing in, in this fashion. 
While entering the house in this way, I scrape the back of my right hand slightly and the index finger and middle finger of my left hand more severely on the brick wall, end quote. How convenient for you. Father Fike claimed to have been troubled when he learned that the same girl he had counseled in the rectory had disappeared. But as it was Easter Sunday, it was a busy time for the priest. He offered two morning masses and a late afternoon mass, and he had performed baptisms that afternoon. Later that same evening, he returned to Sacred Heart to get his suit coat and Roman collar. He saw a priest in the rectory who asked him if he could speak to Irene's parents, Nick and Josefina, who were, understandably, frantic for information about their missing daughter. The Garzas had heard that Irene had met with Fight that Saturday night. Quote, they wanted to know if I had perhaps said anything which might have upset or disturbed their daughter. I replied in the negative, end quote. After that, he did not drive back to San Juan right away, saying, quote, My talk with the girl's parents had disturbed me. Perhaps I had said something, unintentionally, that might have upset this girl. At any rate, it seemed that no one had seen or heard from her since she left the rectory that Saturday night, since she had talked to me. I was worried and drove around aimlessly for a while, end quote. Sure, sure, bud. Father Fight never actually explained how his slide viewer had found its way into the canal, and there was more for investigators to puzzle over. Their list of questions only grew the following day when they sat down again with Fight to ask about the attack on Maria Guerrera. In a signed sworn statement, he acknowledged stopping by the Sacred Heart Church in Edinburgh late in the afternoon on March 23rd, the day of the assault, to talk to a priest in the rectory. What is it with this guy in the rectory, man? He also confessed that he had entertained the entered the sanctuary and knelt in a back pew to play, pray his rosary. And he also told the police that he drove a blue and white 1956 Ford sedan. But he insisted to police that he had left Edinburgh in at least an hour before the attack had occurred, arriving back at the pastoral house in San Juan for the 5.30 bell. As for his finger, which had been badly cut, he had a simple explanation. The day before he went to Edinburgh, he had gotten it stuck in a mimograph machine. A mimograph machine is a low-cost duplicating machine that works by forcing ink through a stencil onto paper. So that's what a mimograph is. Several priests later told the police that Father Fight had not returned to San Juan in time to ring the 530 bell, and that his finger hadn't been hurt until the night of the attack. They recalled that Fight had been wearing the same clothes that Guerrera said her attacker had on. Both she and an eyewitness who had seen her attacker fleeing the church subsequently picked fight out of a lineup. So I don't know why we don't, you know, just go after him now, but okay. Investigators brought in the foremost polygraph team in the nation, the Chicago-based John E. Reed and Associates, whose founder had literally written the book on lie detector tests. At a room on a, in a Holiday Inn, fight was intensely questioned for two days. He was evasive and at times seemed to enjoy baiting his interrogators. He was asked to suggest a question that the examiner should pose to him, and the priest said, quote, Do you believe it is possible that you may have said something or acted in some way to cause Irene's death? End quote. And his own answer to the question was yes. It is noted in the report that, quote, The subject stated that he was referring to the harsh way he had treated her in the rectory the evening she disappeared, end quote. The examiner told Fight to be as candid as possible about the crime, and the examiner recorded that, quote, the subject in a very deliberate and explicit words stated there will never be any evidence turning up in the future of this case. 
Further, that without a confession on his part, there is not enough evidence in either of these cases to convict him or that a good defense attorney could not tear holes in, end quote. The tests determined that he was, quote, definitely implicated in both crimes, end quote. And the examiner was convinced that the subject was not telling the truth when he denied killing Irene Garza or attacking Maria Guerrera. Father Fight was indicted on, in August for assault with the intent to rape Guerrera. He was declared a fugitive when the church officials at the San Antonio headquarters of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate told the arresting officers that he had left the state. He later surrendered, claiming that he had suffered a nervous breakdown. Oh, poor baby. That was brought on by the interrogators, and he stood trial the following year. The jury deadlocked 9-3 to three in favor of conviction, and the proceedings ended in a mistrial. And rather than face another criminal trial, in 1962, Father Fight pled no contest to reduce charges of aggravated assault and was fined $500. There were no murder charges filed against Father Fight as months passed after Irene's death with no indictment. The investigation, which law enforcement officials claimed was still open, seemed to have hit a brick wall. Detectives moved on to other cases, and the newspapers eventually dropped Irene's story. South of the railroad tracks, where injustice was just a fact of life, people wondered aloud whether a deal had been reached or whether elected officials in their overwhelmingly Catholic town were afraid to challenge the church with more than they had already. Nick and Josefina Garza, who both would pass away in their 90s without ever seeing anyone brought to justice for their daughter's murder, were assured that Father Fight, whom they had suspected from the very beginning, would be sent to a monastery. Because that always fixes it. Josefina's sister, Herlinda de la Vina, remembers, quote, Father O'Brien promised the family that the church would punish him if it found that he had done wrong. He told us that the church's punishment was greater than any sentence handed down by the courts, and we believed him. Who were we to question a priest? End quote. Forty-two years later, the phone rang in the homicide division of the San Antonio Police Department. It was a warm spring afternoon in April of 2002. On the other end was a former priest living in Oklahoma City. He had information, he told Detective George Sadler, about a murder that had happened in the 1960s. He explained that he had left the priesthood many years ago, but in 1963 he had resided at a Trappist monastery in Ava, Missouri, saying, quote, I counseled another priest there who came from San Antonio. He told me that he had attacked a young woman in a parish on Easter weekend and murdered her. End quote. Sadler listened but was skeptical. Newspapers around the country were running front page headlines about the sexual abuse scandal that was engulfing the Catholic Church, and Sadler suspected what he was hearing on the phone was the product of an overactive imagination. Even priests who had left the priesthood didn't just call up the police and snitch on each other. But the caller was insistent, and he was able to elaborate on what he knew. Sadler wrote down the man's number and told him to put what he remembered in writing. Sadler said, quote, I'll get back to you when I've got something, end quote, and he hung up the phone. Ten miles away, Texas Ranger Rudy Her I think this Jaramillo, I think that's how you say it, kept a framed black and white photograph of Irene on his desk. The portrait is haunting. She is young and beautiful with half a smile on her face, and sometimes it even looked as if she were staring right back at the, the detective as he went through old witness statements and police reports late into the night. Aramio was one of the eight detectives on the Texas Rangers' new cold case unit, 
which at the request of McAllen law enforcement began to investigate the case that spring. McAllen Police Chief Victor Rodriguez hoped the Unsolved Crimes Investigation Team, along with his department, could solve the murder of Irene Garza. But Jaramillo had very little work to work with. DNA testing of Irene's clothes turned up no new evidence, and many people who were knowledgeable about the case, including nearly all the original detectives, had passed away years before. He did get lucky, though, because in 1960, the investigation had been remarkably methodical and well-documented. However, the case file did not answer some of the most basic questions that a jury would be sure to ask, like where exactly had she been murdered and what was she killed with, along with when was her body dumped into the canal. The clues were in a neatly typed two-page letter that Detective Sadler received from the former priest in Oklahoma City. It recalled a few details that the man had learned during his time at the Trappist Monastery, and it named the priest that he had counseled. Sadler read the letter over and over again. The priest took her to the parish house to hear her confession. After hearing her confession, he assaulted her, bound and gagged her, but he couldn't make sense of it. Had Jaramillo had the chance to read what was written, he would have immediately understood its significance. He had spent thousands of hours learning all he could about the case, interviewing more than 70 people in places as far away as Mexico City. But Detective Sadler didn't know any of this. He had exhumed hundreds of old newspaper articles and any police records that still existed from the early 1960s, yet he couldn't—he could find no murders that matched the details in the letter. No young women in San Antonio had been attacked in a church. No bodies dumped around Easter. Sadler had other work to do as well. He was in charge of San Antonio's backlog of 1,420 unsolved murders. He set aside the notes on the case and moved on. A few weeks before Thanksgiving, Texas Ranger Rocky Milliken stopped by Sadler's office to pick up some evidence in another case he was working on. As he talked about the progress of his investigation, he mentioned that the Ranger's cold case unit had been busy. It was amazing, Milliken marveled, how old some of these cases were, saying, quote, They've got one out of the valley that dates way back to the 1960s. A woman was murdered on Easter weekend and the main suspect was a priest, end quote. Sadler could hardly believe what he was hearing, so he pressed for more details, and the ranger relayed what little he knew of the case. Early that evening, Sadler stopped and talked to Jaramillo in the parking lot in their own little town outside of San Antonio. The two men had never met before, even though they only lived two miles apart. They talked until it got dark, and after comparing notes, they agreed that their separate investigations were in fact one in the same. Nearly all cold cases stay that way. Witnesses die. Memories fade, evidence wastes away, or is eventually thrown away. Only a fraction of those cases are ever revisited. The small number of unsolved crimes that happened to spark the interest of the detectives were not guaranteed to ever be solved, and the odds that a key witness in a case would contact law enforcement 42 years later was extraordinary enough. That the case was being actively investigated at the same moment where the witness mistakenly thought the crime had been committed was beyond anything the seasoned detectives had ever experienced. Jaramillo said, quote, There were times when I felt that Irene was pointing us in the right direction. End quote. Fight, whose name had appeared in the letter from Oklahoma City, was still alive and well. Good for him. He had left the priesthood in 1972 and went to live a quiet, ordinary life in Phoenix. He had gotten married and had children 
and he was working as an insurance salesman. Later, he was a spokesman for the Catholic charity St. Vincent de Paul, where he had been a passionate advocate for the poor and homeless. He was 69 years old when the Texas Rangers began to reinvestigate the case, which is two years older than Irene would have been. In the early 90s, Fight's name had surfaced briefly in legal documents after the defrocked priest James Porter was imprisoned for molesting 28 children. Porter was one of the most notorious pedophiles to ever find refuge in the church, and before his death, he admitted to molesting more than 100 children. Fight and Porter had crossed paths in the 1960s in Jemez Springs, New Mexico, at a home for troubled priests. Fight had been sent there by his superiors after his stay in the monastery in Missouri. At the order of the servants of the Parcelet Treatment Center, where Fight stayed for six years, he managed to work his way up to Superior, which was a role where he rubber-stamped weekend furlough and secured new parish assignments for Porter, despite Porter continuing to molest children. Fight had not revealed his connection to Porter when he was quoted in the Arizona Republic in two th April 2002, praising the church's new guidelines that required that any sexual abuse allegations made against clergy members be reported to civil authorities, saying, quote, It has to be that way. It means that if someone is doing something wrong, they are not above the law simply because they are an ordained minister, end quote. Texas Rangers worked with McAllen police to explore every avenue. Quote, we pursued numerous suspects, Irene's friends, ex-boyfriends, family members, and other priests, but the facts that led investigators in 1960 to focus on one person led us to the same conclusion. End quote. Jaramillo's lieutenant said, they hoped to shake loose any new information from the man who had once been the main suspect. A lawman associated with the probe who asked to not be named called Fight to tell him that the decades-old murder case was being reopened, and asked him if there was anything he wanted to share with the police, anything that, as someone who had seen Irene the night she disappeared, was important to know. And Fight's answer was succinct. Quote, the man doesn't exist anymore. End quote. As with most of Fight's comments to investigators over the years, his statement was bizarre, but it wasn't an admission of guilt. What the Rangers needed to do was develop a case they could present to a jury. Former priest Dale Tackney, Tackney, I think that's how you say it, was their star witness. He was a silver-haired tax specialist who had left the priesthood more than 30 years earlier so he could marry, and he made the long drive to San Antonio in late November and told Jaramillo that all that he knew about the case. In the summer of 1963, he said, his superior at Our Lady of Assumption Abbey in Ava, Missouri, told him of a young priest from San Antonio who had murdered a young woman. The abbot asked Tackney to counsel the young man while he was staying at the monastery and to have him live with the novices to see if he might have a vocation as a monk. The young priest was named John Fite, and what he had revealed during their six months of counseling sessions, Tackney had kept to himself out of the sense of religious obligation for more than four decades. But in his 70s, he had changed. He had a change of heart, saying, quote, I did not feel comfortable with the idea that I had, in fact, been part of a cover-up, along with my abbot, of a priest that had committed murder, end quote. Jaramillo listened in amazement as Tacony shared what all he remembered. Tacony did not know the victim's name, but he recalled she had gone to the church during Holy Week to say confession. 
He then repeated what he claimed the priest told him long ago. Father Fite had asked her to come to the rectory and had listened to her confession there. After the confession, he restrained the woman. Tacony thought she might have been bound and gagged, but he wasn't certain, and he had fondled her breasts. Before he returned to the sanctuary to hear confessions, he moved her to the nearby rectory basement, and later that evening, or in the following days, he moved her to another location. Then, on Easter Sunday, he put her in a bathtub, placed a bag over her head. Quote, he heard her saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. When he came back later that day or early evening, he found her dead in the bathtub. And then, that night, at what hour, I'm not certain, he put her in a car that was available to him and removed her and said he dropped her off along the roadside where there was a canal, end quote. Tacony's account seemed to answer questions that detectives had been throwing around since the original investigation. Why had Father Fight been driving around McAllen aimlessly on Easter night? Why had he left Sacred Heart the previous evening to drive to the pastoral house in San Juan? His story also dovetailed with key facts in the case, with one glaring exception. Tacony thought the murder had occurred in San Antonio in 1962 or 1963. He explained that because Father Fight had come to the monastery in 1963 from San Antonio, he was under the impression that the crime had occurred there, saying, quote, he didn't show what I would consider to be compunction or sorrow or grief or anything like that. I felt at the time rather appalled by what had come about, but that wasn't my job to judge him, end quote. As the interview came to a close, the tension that had been visible in Tacney's face had slackened. He thanked Jaramillo and the other detectives for allowing him to unburden himself of the secret he had been carrying for so many years. When Jaramillo turned the tape recorder off, the former priest broke down and cried. The first hint that a jury would not hear the case happened in July of 2002, when the Brownsville Herald ran a front-page story on Irene's murder and the suspicion that continued to surround John Fight. Hidalgo County District Attorney Rene Guerrera was asked if he planned to pursue an indictment in the case. He said, quote, I reviewed the file some years back. There was nothing there. Can it be solved? Well, I guess if you believe pigs can fly, anything is possible, end quote. What he said next still galls Irene's family. Quote, Why would anyone be haunted by her death? She died. Her killer got away, end quote. Like, what the fuck, dude? You're a public figure making public statements. You might want to check yourself, dumbass. Anyway, much had changed in McAllen since Irene was murdered. The booming border economy had transformed the once insular town into one of the fastest growing cities in the country, a place where citrus orchards had been transplanted by big city traffic and suburban sprawl. The Anglo population had dwindled to just 10% and the railroad tracks ceased to be a dividing line. Guerrera, who had been voted into office in 1982, had been part of the wave of Hispanic politicians who succeeded the country's Anglo establishment and helped to alter the political landscape. Guerrera was so influential that his detractors used to say, quote, is he the king or the DA, end quote. But under the veneer of decades of change, McAllen was still a place where prosecuting a priest, or even a former priest for murder, was met with much resistance. 
The Texas Rangers submitted their findings of their investigation to the DA's office in the spring of 2003, and Guerrero dragged his feet. Quote, it was a good solid case, says Ranger Tony Leal, but Guerrero declared that the evidence was weak and that he would not be presenting it to a grand jury. To the investigators who had worked doggedly over the last year, exhausting every lead, it was a demoralizing blow. Dale Tackney was not their only witness. That spring, he paid a visit, visit to Father O'Brien, who was living at a retirement home for priests. He told investigators that he had suspected fight from the beginning. The lacerations on his hands that Easter weekend were plainly fingernail scratches, he said. He had been suspicious enough of fight that he and another priest searched the attic and basement of Sacred Heart on Easter Sunday looking for any sign of Irene. Later that day, he even followed fight when he drove back to San Juan but had lost him at a red light. But he didn't know any more than that, Father O'Brien assured investigators. Jaramillo said, quote, we felt that he was holding back information and not giving us everything he knew, end quote. During the last round of questions, the priest came undone. He pounded his fists on the table and said that during the summer of 1960, when he had confronted fight about whether he killed Irene, the young priest had told him everything, and he would be willing to say it in court. But because of Guerrero's decision, the priest's account would go unheard. The local media was having none of Guerrero's bullshit and they jumped on the story and demanded to know why the DA was not pursuing murder charges. At first, he said there was insufficient evidence. Without DNA or a confession from the killer, he could not present such an old case to a jury. Later, he would cast doubt on the integrity of the investigation as a whole, accusing the Texas Rangers and local police investigators of refreshing the memories of old witnesses, a charge that law enforcement heatedly denied and one that Guerrero could never substantiate. A public war of words then erupted between the DA and Chief Rodriguez. Quote, this case needs to be tried by a jury, not a single person, end quote, Rodriguez told the McAllen Monitor. Letters to the editor that criticized Guerrero soon flooded local newspapers. Good. Vigils were held on the anniversary of Irene's death and on the Day of the Dead to call attention to the fact that her case was still not solved. Former investigator Sonny Miller who had tried unsuccessfully to resurrect the case during the 90s and who remained certain that the original investigation had been impeded by the church, lobbed a grenade at Guerrera in the Brownsville Herald, saying, quote, I wonder if he thinks he would be excommunicated if he took the case to a grand jury, end quote. After months of negative publicity, Guerrero relented, and in March of 2004, he asked two of his prosecutors to present the evidence to a grand jury. The panel met every Wednesday for 15 weeks while hearing other cases. From the start, the proceedings struck those who waited outside the courtroom, several of Irene's relatives and a bunch of reporters, as unusual. Law enforcement was not called to testify until the 11th week, and stranger still, Tackney and O'Brien were never called at all. John Fight was never subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury, which would have either compelled him to testify or invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. Elena Sanchez was the only person from Sacred Heart that was called to testify. She was the church's secretary who had been a defense witness for fight during his 1961 assault trial. Irene's relative, Noemi Ponce Siegler, said, quote, The DA had already made public statements that ran in the papers and on TV that there was insufficient evidence in this case. Jurors knew where the DA stood when they were making their deliberations, end quote. 
On June 9, 2004, the jury declined to indict John Fite and no-billed the case. Later that same week, Chief Rodriguez announced that he was closing the investigation, a move that he believed would make the case files subject to open records requests. But Guerrero threatened to prosecute the chief if he showed the files to the media, insisting it was still an open case. A grand jury would, will hear the case again, Guerrero has said, if only, only if a confession is forthcoming. Guerrero defended his prosecutor's decision not to call key witnesses, stating that usual policy of his office in grand jury hearings is to rely on the recorded statements to police. He insisted that he had been supportive of the investigation from the start, saying, quote, I gave them my blessing, end quote, and that he hoped to see justice in the case. As for the widely held belief that he failed to convene a grand jury for nearly a year because the target of the inquest would be a former priest, Guerrero called the attacks, quote, unfair and unsubstantial unsubstantiated, end quote. He and the case's lead prosecutor, Homer Vasquez, grew up attending Sacred Heart in Edinburgh, he allowed, but his faith would always be subordinate to his oath of office. Dale Tackney and Father O'Brien both waited for the call that would have summoned them to the Hidalgo County Courthouse, but it never came. After the no bill was handed down, Tackney drove to McAllen and apologized to Irene's family for the role he played. He said, quote, for me, taking, talking to the Rangers did not fulfill the moral obligation that I felt I had, end quote. He spent several days in the valley where he met with Irene's relatives and visited her grave. On his way back to Oklahoma, he stopped by the courthouse and introduced himself to Guerrero. Tackney says, quote, I stuck out my hand and he took a while to extend his. The feeling I got was that he wanted me and this whole thing to go away, end quote. Tackney noted that Father O'Brien is a year his senior and is in poor health and says, quote, it's a waiting game. When O'Brien and I are dead, that's the end of it, end quote. In 2014, the district court judge Ricardo Rodriguez campaigned to unseat Guerrera as DA, and the Garza case arose as a campaign issue. Rodriguez says he wanted justice for the Garza family and promised to take a new look at the case if he was elected. In the days Rodriguez election as DA, Guerrero sought to appoint him as a special prosecutor in the Garza case. Rodriguez declined, saying he preferred to take a new look at the evidence once he took office in January of 2015. In April, he announced the Garza case reopened. February 2016, Fight was arrested in Scottsdale, Arizona. He was 83 at the time of his arrest, and he used a walker when he appeared in court. Fight was extradited to Texas in March 2016 and incarcerated at the Hidalgo County Sheriff's Adult Detention Facility. He entered a plea of not guilty. The prosecution requested a $750,000 bond, and the defense team asked for a $100,000 bond, adding that Fight had stage 3 kidney and bladder cancer. Oh, Judge Lewis Singletary set a $1 million bond. Go Judge Singletary. Status hearings in the case were held in June and November 2016, and the discovery process was ongoing as of November. In February 2017, a judge set a late April trial date and defense filed for a change of venue, claiming that their client wouldn't receive a fair and impartial trial in Hidalgo County. They filed a 700-page document with evidence showing that reporters allegedly condemned fight as a murderer and that the only reason why he avoided prosecution for years was because the Roman Catholic Church had protected him. Sometime in March, Tackney testified against Fight in a closed deposition. This was permitted under Texas law given the witness's age and exclusive knowledge of the case. 
On May 24th, Judge Singletary heard arguments from both prosecution and defense on the venue change request. And on June 7th, he denied the request after considering that the defendant failed to prove that there was a prejudice against him in the Hidalgo community. July 19th, Fight appeared in court for a pre-hearing. The trial was, ex was expected to begin on September 11th. However, on September 10th, the court decided to push the trial back due to scheduling conflicts. The trial was delayed until mid-October. So on October 30th, Fight's defense filed a motion for continuance and the trial was moved back to November 28th. So it's just playing a back and forth game and it sucks. On December 7th, Fight was convicted of Irene Garza's murder. In the punishment phase of the trial, Fight's attorney asked that Fight be given probation, citing his lack of felony convictions since Irene's death. The prosecution asked for a sentence of 57 years, which was symbolic of the amount of time that had passed since Irene's death. But on December 8th, the jury opted for a sentence of life in prison. Fight was incarcerated at the W.J. Estelle unit. He died of natural causes on February 12th, 2020. So really, he didn't serve long enough, but at least he stood trial, and Irene's family has that tiny little bit of closure. And that was Irene Garza. May she rest in peace. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder, please. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. Love that you guys listen. I hope that you guys like it. If you have any stories you want me to tell on the pod, you have any like ghost stories, any murder stories, like whatever story you want, you can email them to us at champagneandmurderplease at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on our socials, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And I hope that you guys have a great weekend. I hope you have a great week next week. Hopefully everything is smooth sailing for you. And if not, just remember, this too shall pass. And I will talk to you guys next week. So remember, stay safe and don't take candy from strangers. Goodbye.